You did not choose to be here, but you are. For you to survive being here, and for you to, you know, make it, could either be rough, or it could be easy. If I grow to like you, and trust you, then I could do special things for you, such as buy you cigarettes, pick up a movie on the way home from work, and so forth. Welcome to the Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. On tonight's episode, we will discuss the life, the killing, and the death of Robert Berdella, the former owner of Bob's Bazaar Bazaar. Why did he begin killing? How was he caught? How do we know what actually happened? Find out on tonight's episode of Scarlet Tavern. Right, so welcome to the first episode of Scarlet Tavern. Woohoo! First time. So, um, this is obviously pre-recorded. Everybody's used to us doing some live stuff, and um, this is us getting our hand into some other things that interest us. this is Scarlet Tavern, Dragons, History, Murder, and More. Uh, tonight is obviously murder, um, but we will, every week, we will begin touching on various topics from this to um, more stuff about stuff about D&D. Uh, I do know we're touching on the Satanic Panic at some point. That will probably be a two-parter because it is massive. Uh, we're going to do some history stuff. We're... We're just going to kind of venture in. We may get some guests at some point that pop in with us. If uh, any of our other cast members from Dungeons and Magi uh, are very interested in the topic. Um, But tonight it is uh, for me here. It's a hometown hero. He is from Ohio. Um, And Robert Berdella isn't. Definitely is not one of the most well-known serial killers. I believe, Ben, you didn't really know about him until I showed him to you. No, never heard of him. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm safe in saying I'm probably very, I'm more of a history buff and even try, crime, uh, true crime fan than even you, Caleb. I I mean, there's there's been a lot of stuff I've talked to you about that you were like, I don't know who that's. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, this this I will say I didn't really know who Robert Berdella was until um I I myself listened to true crime podcasts. Um and them as well as a few other podcasts and what we do on a weekly basis kind of did help us help inspire us to do something like this um and kind of branch out but um I first heard about them with uh, the podcast Necronomapod. Um, they they did a short series on him, and they didn't dig into him too far, but uh, he definitely is interesting. And they are Ohio boys, so this is they did a whole series of hometown heroes, and this was he was one of them. Um, but yeah, so. Just a warning uh, for anyone watching this. Um, Robert Berdella is a serial killer. He is also a serial rapist, which means the things that we will be discussing tonight do come with a trigger warning. So uh, if you are, and we are going into detail, so if you are squeamish or you have any triggers, um, please just wait till next episode to watch us. Um <laughs> Uh, we're kind of jumping in with both feet here. Um, yes, we are. But yeah, so, I mean, I, I think we should just get right into it. Absolutely. The lifetimes and tragedy of Robert Berdella. All right. So, um, I'm going to go ahead and go through it. If Ben, you want to stop me at any time to discuss part of it, go ahead. We'll discuss bits and pieces of it um robert andrew berdella jr 
was born January 31st, 1949 in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. That is just north of Akron. So that is closer to you then. Yeah, actually, I do. I've never. I think I've passed through that area. So everybody, Ben is in New York currently. Buffalo, New York. Till hopefully the end of the year. Uh, Uh, Please, somebody help me get me out of the state. uh, Till he moves here. Um, But yeah, so it's it's closer to you. Uh, He was the oldest of two sons, and his father, Robert Berdella Senior, was a die setter for the Ford Motor Company. And his mother was Mary Louise Berdella. Berdella's father was a devout Roman Catholic of Italian descent. The family attended mass regularly, and both sons attended religious education courses. Ben, you know how that is. Mm-hmm. I did not grow up Catholic. I grew up I did. Pentecostal right. Christian, but uh, you you were right there along with him and attending mass regularly and um mass at believe it or not actually i didn't go to mass too often i i went well to you did all go to catholic, catholic school so so it's i guess in the way every fridays during yeah. catholic schools during from middles from kindergarten to eighth grade every fridays were our mass and high school also catholic school st francis of st francis high school we'd have mass about actually friday as well um and so, yeah, I did go. I guess you could say I go to mass regularly, but in this case, we not had Sunday no choice. Mass. Yeah, not Sunday, man. Very, not as often, very sporadically. But I, yes, I my whole education was courtesy of the Catholic Church. So I do know what it is to have that old school religious education, you know, kind of beaten into you. Yeah. Um, with all accounts, Berdella was an intelligent child, but a loner who rarely played outside his home and seldom had friends visit. He had a speech impediment and wore thick glasses from the age of five because he was severely nearsighted. Uh, even as a younger child, he had high blood pressure and was unathletic, unlike his younger brother, Daniel, who was seven years younger than he was. Um Brunello's father valued sports and physical education and viewed his older son's lack of interest in sports as a sign of failure. Occasionally, Brunello's father physically and emotionally abused his children, beating them with a leather strap. Um, now, this being written in today's age, I would say that maybe that is abuse. But you're also, I mean, you're, you're talking, he was born in the forties. So at this point he's in, it's in the fifties and he, that was a normal thing. Unfortunately, yes, it was very normal. Um, My own family acolytes can, I can attest to that. Yeah. So especially in a religious household, that was very normal. Um, I, I got. I got beat with a belt growing up. I mean, even I think up until the mid to late two thousands, it was common. Some would say not enough. Uh, I I'm joking. <laughs> um, Berdella performed well in school, although teachers found him difficult to teach due to his aloofness and being bullied by other students. Um, when he reached puberty, he had discovered that he was homosexual he did keep this as a close guarded secret at first and did not open up about it for several years. Uh, he was well into his adult life before he did open up about it. Um, and in his teens, he had a, a few girlfriends, um, one steady one to kind of hide it and be normal, um, as normal as he could be. Um, by his mid teens, Bordella displayed a degree of self-confidence becoming rude and condescending to others, especially women. He learned about cooking and art and became a showman. On Christmas Day, 1965, the Bradella family drove to Canton, Ohio, to visit relatives where his father had a heart attack at the age of 39. Two days later, Bradella returned home by himself, where he was told that his father had died. Uh, he attempted to find solace in Catholicism, but eventually became cynical about all religion. He did eventually become an atheist. Um, Shortly after the death of his father, Bradella's mother remarried. 
This was met with resentment by Berdella, who viewed the move as a form of betrayal against his father. It was then that became increasingly withdrawn. Um, I, in my opinion, so uh, serial killers, and we were talking about this before we went on air, serial killers typically have a trigger, a point where what causes their them to snap, what causes them to start killing. Um, the thing with Robert Berdella, and we're going to get into his murders here in a little bit, but the thing with Robert Berdella is you can't really pinpoint what made him snap, what triggered it. Um, there is also the thing that anytime we talk about serial killers, we will discuss this. It's called the McDonald triad, not McDonald's. McDonald triad. Uh, that is the three kill the three items that make a serial killer. That is wetting the bed past the age of puberty. Generally, um, some wet the bed. Uh, I believe it was, uh, and will be will be corrected if I'm wrong. Um, I believe Bundy wet the bed in his twenties. Um, Did not know that it is. Also, uh, playing with fire, um, setting fires, just being fascinated with fire. Arson is the second one. And the third one is torture and killing of animals. Um, you will see, we will see in a little bit that we, he does do some stuff with animals, but not, he doesn't do anything that is deemed part of the McDonald triad. Um, so it's, he really is outside of the box when it comes to serial killers. We can't, some would say that the death of his father and his mother remarrying may be a trigger, but this happened in 1965 and his first murder, uh, let's see his first murder wasn't until the eighties. So you've got almost 20 years where he didn't commit murder after this happened. So it's not really a trigger. So it's really hard to figure out what his trigger was. He was just, he's, and this is the reason I wanted to touch on him is because he is such out of the norm of typical serial killers. Everybody knows Jeffrey Dahmer. Everybody knows, um, uh, the your typical serial killers, um, Ed Gein, uh, the celebrity ones, yeah, Ed Gein, celeb- uh, Ed Kemper. So everybody knows them. They know, and again, all of them they follow that McDonald triad. At some point, they had like, yes, Robert Berdella was beat with a belt, basically, but it, there's no evidence that it was to the point of like Ed Kemper, Ed Kemper was, and we will do Ed Kemper because he is my favorite serial killer. Um, as, as, as bad as that sounds, having a favorite serial killer, Ed Kemper is definitely the most interesting. Um, I would think interesting is a better, especially being the fact that he's still alive. Um, yes. And talks to, let, let's go ahead and try and get an interview with Ed Kemper because he does interviews all the time. Um, That's on you. I'm not talking to him. <laughs> I like to, I like to sleep soundly at night. He, Thank he you also much. is like makes me look tiny, um, and I'm not a small person. Um, but yeah. So, anyways, I would say with touching on Robert Berdella with just in the fact of his. I know the the best thing we have for his tri- triggering is his father's death. As someone who's fairly least even lost his father, I can the whole withdrawal, becoming a depressed state, and everything. That's very typical, especially when you've had you didn't have you might not have had the best relationship with them beforehand, and then next thing you know, a whole flood of emotions. I I mean, and the whole his mom remarrying. This is 1965. Back then, you when women, I hate to say it, women didn't have a lot of options no. in terms of that. I mean, if you, you were married, I, she, your husband, she also didn't work back then either. Exactly. So she needed so, a source of income. 
I mean, we they could say like, oh, I, to be the 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 mournful widow for the rest of your life. Yeah, well, you know, Bill still got to be paid. So, and if she doesn't have a marketable job skills, which unfortunately, not a lot, not as many women did back then as they do today. I mean, marrying right away is like, okay, this is you know, I need I need a breadwinner. Yeah. So I can't imagine. I mean, I can un- probably understand. Maybe he would be a little bit resentful, but I don't think that was a triggering thing. I'm sure the the, the practicalities would have to outweigh anything, especially depending on if their relationship was – if it was good at all. I don't – from what I read, I, they don't really talk about it. He didn't really talk about his relationship, but I can't imagine it was good enough. So, so yeah, I mean – I uh, And like I said, 20 years in between a trigger usually – a trigger happens and then unless he murdered back then and just never talked about it, but he was pretty open about everything that he did. Um, and he came to, I mean, we'll talk about it later. He had journals for everything. Um, which is another very interesting aspect. He, so I feel like he would, if he would have killed back then, he would have confessed to it. Um, but yeah, so in the summer of 67, Berdella graduated from Kuya, uh, Cuyahoga Falls High School. He then relocated to Kansas City. Um, and this is where he gets his nickname. It was He was the Kansas City Butcher. Um, so he's not from Kansas City, but he relocated there uh, to go to the Kansas City Art Institute. He wanted to become a college professor. Um, so it was seemingly normal um at 19 years old i mean uh his first year was considered attentive and talented but by his second year he became vocally anti-authoritarian um he also became acquainted with a group of students who supplied him with drugs which he then sold to other students at a profit he also began regularly abusing alcohol uh he then engaged in acts of animal torture so this article says he engaged in acts of animal torture. I personally, um, and just a little bit of background, because we're probably going to have some people that uh, are listening to this that are not familiar with us, like our Dungeons and Magi fans are. Um, I come from nine years of law enforcement. I spent uh, two years in the military and active duty, and then five years in civilian and then two in federal um, and i have about uh six seven years military law enforcement plus a number of years in private security um every aspect short of executive security so just a lot of dealing with people and everything yeah so um and the some of the stuff that we talk about in the law wise by no means are we lawyers uh no means are we anything like that? We're just giving from our experience in our experience with the law. But in my personal opinion, they say torture. I do not believe that this is torture. Um, this was definitely odd. This was, it, yeah, it was, is, this, this was, a, was it, was it, so the incident that they talking about in question was a duck. He brought a duck to this, to the cut, to the college campus and the, and he proceeded to kill the duck, chopped its head off, Correct. and then proceeded to prepare it to cook it. Now he, now of course, everybody was horrified and aghast at this because this is not a hunting lodge. This is the University of Kansas. So the, this, this, no pun intended. This ruffles some feathers. Um, yeah, but I wouldn't say it was torture. I think it was just doing this at the wrong place. This was, but I think this also kind of gives us a little bit of an insight, an early insight into his thought process before he actually starts. He crosses that threshold of becoming a a prolific serial killer. This is somebody who is not like you and I, especially you, you're more of a hunter than I am. You've I've never hunted in my life. I fish. But even I know there is a time and place to go, you know, gut and clean a fish. You know there's a time and place to go and gut and kill your clean and gut and whatever you do with deer or whatever whatever you hunt. I don't actually 
you never actually told me what you want, but um, whatever, just as long as it's prepared to be cooked when I'm when when it's done. <laughs> but this tells me a a disassociation, like he just doesn't under. I think he understood. Huh. This is probably not the place to do this, but I don't really care. Point. Off goes Donald's head. So. Where's, um, where's, where's Ethan with her duck? Yes. Yeah, why couldn't Ethan get here? Dang it. Um, the one time I actually want, I, I love when he does <laughs> a thing in our sessions, but the one time I really need him here, but, uh, but no, I think this is that he just, I don't think he could actually, this is a sign. He could not really understand people. Yeah. Like he just didn't really get it so yes maybe in the clinical definition this wasn't torture but to me i think any any psychiatrist would say this would probably be a pretty strong indication of what would be to come yeah so like ben said he brought a duck to campus and did decapitate the duck he did prepare it and cook it and eat it um, and in the second instance, he experimented with sedatives and tranquilizers on a dog. Now, when we talk about the McDonald triad, we do talk about torture and killing of animals. Is sedative and giving sedative and tranquilizers to a dog bad? Yes. Yes. Is it classified as torture? No. In my opinion, mm-hmm. it's not. There's no indication of, and we don't know, he never said, there's no indication of whether the dog died or not. Um, from what we can tell, it was a stray um, that he that would just come around and he would practice this stuff on it. And now, obviously, this is we're going to get into that sedatives and tranquilizers will play a big role in what's to come, but this was definitely the beginning of what he was trying to accomplish. Um, at the age of 19, Bradella was arrested for attempting to sell meth to an undercover officer. Uh, he was released after posting bond and would later plead guilty and was handed a five year suspended sentence. So that means he did not serve any time. Uh, he was given the charge. If the sentence is suspended, it means he serves no time. He was basically did time served. Um, and Very that was time. Well, not not necessarily. Well, this- I mean, this yes, it's the '60s, but this is also his first time getting in trouble. He True. has he has no priors. Even nowadays, if you got caught with meth, um, selling meth, you're more than. And he probably he was a college kid. He didn't have a lot of money, so it's not like he had. He had gr- massive amounts of meth. He probably had maybe an ounce or two that he was probably. selling because he's buy- I, he's buying it from somebody else and reselling it. So and and this is the sixties. I'm sure they were. I'm sure Kansas City Police Department was probably inundated with no, with sure. hippies selling everything. Yeah. So, so I mean, they were just probably like, yeah, go away. So given he, they gave him a five year suspended sentence with with that. I mean, yes, it, it's still even in the sixties that was a felony. So that that there puts him in the system as a felon. Um, And then one month after his first arrest, he and two other students were arrested for possession of marijuana and LSD in Johnson County. Now, marijuana. So marijuana and LSD still run rampant in certain parts of the country. Florida, it's huge. Um, They actually lace the marijuana with LSD. uh, And it's called a wet daddy. Um, And... Basically, you smoke more than one joint, it'll kill you. It's it's bad. The so LSD obviously was huge in the sixties and seventies. The hippie movement, it was LSD was massive. Um, so uh, on this occasion, he would n- he could not postpone, and he had to spend five days in jail. Uh, but they were dropped due to lack of evidence. Not sure how there was lack of evidence because. If he was arrested for possession of marijuana and LSD, then they arrested it with him having it. The only thing I can think of is that the other two he was with had, and they don't, obviously they don't keep records like they do now. Um, If this was current, I could go back and find 
their rest record, but obviously we're not going to find a rest record from the 60s. In a in Johnson County, which is a very small county, um, but uh, well, in that time. Um, but my only guess is the other two had it. He was arrested for being with them, and then they dropped the charges because he never physically had it on him. He probably had a public defender that got him off of it. And plus the fact he's spending five days in jail. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure they figured, well, good they, enough. Again, yeah. this is the sixties. Everybody was the the whole law Drugs enforcement all their worries. Law in the sense that they were probably being so inundated with drugs coming in all over the country, especially marijuana. Marijuana was probably the biggest symbol of the counterculture of the 60s. So they probably just, it's like you said, probably was just either they didn't actually see it, have it on them. They were like, hmm, uh, yeah, he's been in jail five days. Bye. Get out of here. Yeah. Um, in 1969, Berdella voluntarily withdrew from KCAI, uh, his college after receiving harsh criticism from college administrators for killing and cooking a duck for the sake of art. Um, so the administrators did not like him killing that duck in front of everybody. And they, 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 they weren't kicking him out. They, from what I can tell, they were just telling him never to do it again, but in his mind, that was it. He was done. Um, so he left. He did choose to remain in Kansas City, uh, and in September of that year, he moved to an address within the Hyde Park District, which is 4315 Charlotte Street. Uh, we're saying that because it no longer exists. Um, but that address will play a huge part throughout this whole thing. Um, but yes, that, that house that he moved into no longer exists. It was torn down after he was, uh, after he died, uh, spoiler alert, he dies. Um, by this stage, he had been openly gay for several years. So 69. So he's in his mid twenties by the time, by the time he is openly gay, um, he began spending much of his time with male prostitutes, drug addicts, petty criminals, and runaways. He would typically befriend these individuals and try to help free them from their drug addictions or criminal lifestyles. He claims, again, this is him, don't know how much I believe it, but he claims throughout much of the 70s he had no physical contact with them. Mm. I don't know if I believe that. He's openly gay and inviting male prostitutes. I highly nothing's happening. Okay. I highly doubt, especially with what we get into. I highly doubt he had no physical contact. Um, I would very much doubt that too. Despite coming up from, it, it'd be one thing if he had been maintaining some cover as a atypical family man or everyday man in that time period and like internalizing his homosexuality and not living in open style, but he clearly was out, out yeah. and about he, I, I'm gay and, and out here and queer and whatever that and happy. And if I forget the statement, please forgive me. I'm sorry, but it's, it's just what the slogan was, but so there's obviously no issues there. So yeah, I don't think, yeah. That, yeah. That, and that, it's not like he was hiding from family because he wasn't like BTK who was a family man who was going out and killing people underneath their family's noses. Another one we're going to touch on BTK also from Kansas. Yes. I, I BTK. I, I actually remember the B I was old enough to remember the BTK trial. Um, I remember hearing about, I, all I remember hearing about that was Man, serial killer gets caught because he sent he taunts police with a fax machine from his yeah. church's um, uh, fax machine in his well, church's basement. It's like, well, that's it wasn't it wasn't just it wasn't that he, um, he, we'll we'll get into it when we do him. But he sent, um, he also like sent letter. he sent a tape. It was like a tape or something like that to them and it had information that they needed on it 
<laughs> it was a floppy disk. That's what it was. It was a floppy disk that he sent in. And it had okay. the information that they needed to catch him um, because he, he thought he was smarter than everybody else. But again, I, I remember this because my dad was a cop my entire life. So we were really hyper-focused on all of that stuff and he would watch all of that. So I remember the BTK trials, but anyways, we digress um, to several of his neighbors. Bradella stated he gradually felt like a foster parent to many of these youths. Bradella would often engage in sexual relations with the men he befriended and would establish a degree of control over them in part to engage in these sexual relations via methods such as loaning them money and allowing them to live rent free at his house for a period of time. So that right there kind of contradicts what he said of, he never had contact with them. And here it's saying he, in his own words, would engage in sexual relations with the men he befriended. There's always the uh, a lot of these people, a lot of the, these people, these these killers have their own. They see things differently than what we see. Like Sam Hunt, I what was it uh, the one that just Michael Connolly did a podcast about it. One of the most prolific serial killers in America. He did one thing. He was actually what he'd actually do is I forget his name is Sam something. Uh, he was actually a pretty decent self-taught sketch artist. And he actually for a lot of his victims, he actually did sketches of them. And they they identified just like a handful of the victims from them. But as one of the investigators said, what he saw them as and what they really were like not just like finding the dead bodies obviously those decomposed and everything no they they were two different things like he would target prostitutes a lot so he would draw these very very well done beautiful portraits of the the women that he killed but in but when you look at the a compare and contrast it's like those don't really look like it, but in his eyes, this is what they look like. So this is, again, the dissociation between what is real and not. He thinks, oh, I'm a father figure. It's really not. Yeah. <clears throat> to me, this is now we're starting to gear up. For what I was reading about Robert Burdell, this is where the progression to the point where he grows into his first victim is starting to gear up at this oh, point. Yeah. He's starting Absolutely. the power. He's starting to befriend them because maybe at some level he... Maybe he did. Maybe, maybe he did at some point try to help these people, and then he started getting favors, and then he liked the power, and then he just kept going and going, and there was just no stop. I, I don't think he ever did this with the intent of helping them. I think he did this with the intent of doing what we're about to talk about. He just had to grow the nerve to do it or figure out how to do it the right way. In my opinion, he was probably still practicing on animals, still practicing tranquilizing dogs, things like that. They don't get into that, but I personally think that that's probably what happened. And he had to gain his nerve before he could do it. Um, and that's where I think we're getting into now. Um he was considered to be flamboyant, yet helpful and civic-minded. Beginning in the late 70s, he worked with South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association, becoming their chairman in the early 80s, and actually encouraging neighborhood watch patrols. Uh, he remained active in that until the mid-80s when he relinquished the position. So we're sitting here looking at, and this is almost very Ted Bundy-ish. Um kind of being able to blend in with society. Ted Bundy, obviously probably the most prolific serial killer in history. Um, and he was a charmer. He was able to get in there. And, um, but you're also looking at, uh, another one that was, oh, who was it? Was it um, TK? That was part of the Republican. No, well, no, that or was actually. Uh, no, just so. Oh, fun fact, little, little, little off-boot topic to everyone. Um, J. 
John Wayne Gacy was actually yes, the, was, was was the Democratic precinct captain for his area. He was a registered Democrat with the Democratic Party. Was friends with and, Met Clinton and all of that. Uh, no, uh, no, he never met Clinton. But there is a picture. It's been it was uh, with Hillary, tried, wasn't it? No, no, it was uh, Rosalind Carter. It was actually Jimmy, the first lady, Jimmy Carter's wife. There was actually a picture of John Wayne Gacy. It's still out there. You can find it. They, I know the Carter administration did all made a pretty concerted effort to try and hide it, but there is a picture of John Wayne Gacy like smiling and shaking hands with the first lady at like on election day um, in Chicago where he was precinct captain. Um, another, just a little, another off topic about a killer who blend in. Actually, you may not have known this, but it was uh, the Hillside Strangler. Um, Kenneth Bianca and Angelo Buno. Um uh, Angelo Bonanno Jr. Uh, two very prolific uh, serial killers that worked as a pair. I'm sure we'll cover them at some point during this. But um, one uh, was it? Ken I think Kenneth Bianchi was actually at the time of even doing these murders was actually in the process of being hired as a Los Angeles Police Department officer. He actually would go on. Uh, manhunts for himself. There yeah. was a couple instances where they found a body of one of his victims. They at two days after he'd left her, and they he was doing his part of the back in the seventies part of the requirements to be a Los Angeles police officer. You had to do a dry uh, ride along with some of the officers, and he was on a yeah. manhunt for himself. So. Even one of the largest, most professional law enforcement agencies kind of got didn't even realize yeah so um again he just kind of went in with this um shortly after moving to his charlotte street address he began working as a short order cook in various restaurants around kansas city in part to help pay lawyer fees and fines accrued from his previous drug arrests uh, as a means of attaining additional income he also sold items of art and antiques he had accrued and collected from contacts he had established in africa Asia, South America, and various Pacific Rim countries. He initially operated the side business from home. Both his career as a cook and his side business eventually flourished, and by the mid-70s, he began working as a senior cook at several renowned Kansas City restaurants, also joining a local chef's association and helping establish a training program for aspiring chefs at a local community college. Um, he also began to devote more of his attention to his own business, and by 81, he had established several contractual agreements with both national and international contacts for his own antiques business. He viewed this as a full-time job and ended up uh, quitting his work as a chef. Um, another thing with him kind of blending in and trying, I at this point, is he trying to do good? I think so. I think he's trying to give these kids some stuff that he didn't have. He, by all accounts, he loved being a cook. He loved cooking. Um, and maybe he was giving these kids stuff. He did trying to give these kids something he didn't have, um, growing up where with a quote unquote loving father figure, uh, whether it was him or not, um, I think it, that part of his brain was just he couldn't get it to click. I think I think one of the like you you talked about earlier about this Robert Bradley is just not your typical serial killer. Yeah. There's there's not a clean cut. This broke him. He started killing. He started the progression. I think at this point, like I, what I was saying earlier, I think at this point he's just getting ripped up. Like he's just doing it. Maybe, maybe he is trying to stop and be better. Maybe he is just trying to do good. But, but I think also at the back of his mind, he's just it's progressing. It's getting colder. He's getting bolder. He's getting more. He's getting more comfortable, if not with the idea of what and who he is. Because I mean, this at this point, he is a grown adult. He is not a kid. He's not a twenty-one-year-old kid at Kansas City Art Institute. He is, oh, you know, he's a grown man. He's almost in his forties now. Exactly. So he, he knows who he is. He He's probably long since accepted this. Now he's just getting comfortable and getting ready to go to the next level, which we're going to probably, I believe, we are about to get into his, uh, close, yeah. his first victim. Um, 
1982, Bradella began renting his own booth at the Westport Flea Market, still in Kansas City. Um, the store was named Bob's Bazaar Bazaar, as in B-A-Z-A-A-R and then B-I-Z-A-R-R-E. Bob's Bazaar Bazaar. Catchy uh, name. Yeah, I mean, um, and at this time, you we we kind of know at this point he goes he doesn't go by Robert he go he does go by Bob, um, for most of his life. Once he became an adult, Bob was what everybody called him. Uh, he primarily sold and traded primitive art, jewelry, and antiques. Um, I that's where I don't get where the second bazaar came from. Obviously, the first bazaar is a is a market um, in typically in the Middle East, uh, but bizarre, like strange bizarre. He didn't really sell stuff like that. He didn't sell strange items. Oh, um, strange to other people, I guess. Yeah. So he occasionally made a profit, but not enough to maintain his daily expenses and make ends meet. As a result, he would occasionally steal or scavenge for items to sell at his booth or take lodgers at his home and means of gaining additional income. At his work premises, Berdella became acquainted with a fellow merchant named Paul Howell, who operated a booth adjacent to Berdella's. Soon, he met his younger son, Jerry. Initially, Jerry Howell and his friends scathed and taunted Berdella over his overt homosexuality. Jerry, later confi- uh, Jerry Howell later confided in him that he and his friends occasionally earned money as male prostitutes. Um, and we can guess that Berdella was... In, in my opinion, of course, Dungeons and Magi, myself, Ben, we are all LGBTQ allies. We mm-hmm. we are with that community. Um, but you have the different types of gays, for lack of a better word. You have the, the ones where you look at, are they gay? You can't really tell. And then you have the flamboyant. Yeah. You, uh, and, yeah, no, and from yeah. what we can guess, Robert Berdella was the flamboyant side. Um, he was he was when he be when he came out as gay, he was flamboyant. Out there. He was out. Um, so by let's see, by the early 1980s, Paul Howell had relocated his business to a storefront and his family moved to an apartment above the shop. Bordello remained a casual friend of the family. Um, and with that, the reason that we talk about the Howells is because it is believed that on July 5th, 1984, 19-year-old Jerry Howell was being driven to a dancing contest, Miriam, by Robert Bordella. According to Berdella, he plied Howell with alcohol, Valium, and Asapromazine, which, uh, for those that don't know, Asapromazine is a sedative for animals. Um, I, I, good, you told me, because I was reading that. I was like, what? Is, yeah, what is Asapromazine is a very, and I'm, I'm sorry, I currently am a combat medic as well. So I, I have medical knowledge as well. Uh, Asapromazine is a sedative for animals. It is very strong. It is typically um, what the vets will give animals before a procedure. Um, and, and now it's used typically for smaller animals, not for... Uh, people? People, yeah. So that, that mix is... It definitely plays a part. Uh, so he did that both in his car and at his house. Um, so he got he got double dosed, uh, and and he basically kept giving it to him until Howell went unconscious. He then injected Howell with a heavy tranquilizer before binding him to the bed, and this is where practicing with the dog led up to this. Um, and just as a warning, uh. From here on out, the parts are going to be pretty graphic um, as we discuss what is going to be happening. So if uh, you would like to move on, we understand. Um, 
but please come see us next week. Uh, so, Howell was restrained at Berdella's bed for a period of approximately 28 hours. Throughout his period of captivity, Berdella repeatedly drugged, tortured, raped, and violated him with foreign objects. He believes, it's believed that he either asphyxiated on his own vomit or the combination of the gag and medicines were too, too strong for him to be able to catch his breath. Um, and that's according to Berdella. That was, was written in his journal. Berdella would later state that it briefly attempted CPR after Howell died before dragging his body to the basement. He then suspended Howell's body above a large cooking pot and made several incisions to the inner elbows and jugular vein before leaving the body suspended in this position overnight to allow the blood to drain from his corpse. This, this is probably where the chef, chef training is probably coming yes. in. Yes. Um, but as a chef, you don't really, depending on where he worked, you don't really break down animals in this way. That's usually safe for the butcher. So my thought is maybe growing up, he had gone hunting. He is from Ohio Maybe a gun hunting because this is typically what we do when we are draining a deer. Um, this is the quickest way to drain the blood from a deer. You go jugular across a jugular to drain the blood. Um, and now, of course, going on the inner elbows, you are hitting the largest veins that pump the most blood. So I I don't know if he read books and did all of that. But we're not sure how he learned how to do this, but safe to say he studied it pretty hard to be able to do this pretty easily. Um, he again, he left this overnight to allow the blood to drain the following day. He dismembered Hal's body using a chainsaw and boning knives before wrapping the sections in newspaper and trash bags. He then placed those inside larger trash bags, which he placed outside for the garbage to be collected. Um, so normal, everyday garbage was collected right along with, which is what he typically does with most of the bodies, which is how he got away with it for so long. Because they were just going to the dump and they were being lost. And of course, it being in the trash, this is where you kind of get the sense that he thought a lot of this ahead of time. This was a very much premeditated. Um, this wasn't a spontaneous thing. Is your spawn? If this was spontaneous, he wouldn't have thought of double bagging it, cutting it up, all of that. He would have buried it in his backyard. Um, yeah, I mean, also he held this this poor man for twenty eight hours. So I'm sure while he's doing these horrific things in the back of his mind, he's like. How am I going to clean this up? Yeah. Um, when Berdella was later questioned by officers investigating Howell's disappearance, he claimed to have driven him to Miriam as promised and that the two had parted ways close to Howell's intended destination. He had not seen him since. As would be the case with all of Berdella's murders, he kept a detailed log in which he documented each act of sexual and physical torture inflicted on his victims. Um, the next one is April 10th, 1985. And uh, a former lodger, uh, 20-year-old Robert Sheldon, arrived on Berdella's doorstep, asking if he could stay again at his house for a short period of time. According to Berdella, although Sheldon was responsible for paying rent, he considered him an inconvenience, and even though he was not physically attracted to his victim, he chose to drug and hold him captive on April 12th when he returned home from work to find Sheldon intoxicated in his home. Basically, he got pissed off that this dude was just sitting there getting drunk all the time. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do the same thing to this guy, even though I think he's ugly. I, I would honestly, I would argue this is his first real intended victim. So one of the things you you mentioned earlier in the, in the episode was there's no real triggering point where he did this and he went down this road. 
Um, I would probably, and I think they allude to it when we were researching this, they alluded to it. He was known in the male prostitute sex worker community. Um, I would figure he probably with uh, Jerry Howell, he was probably, probably didn't. I, I don't think he really, I really believe he didn't intend to kill him. I think he was going to do, he doing something he probably had done before. And unfortunately he just, it, it was just one thing too far. And then the thrill of killing him and an- ending this person's life, probably this is the moment he's like, Oh, well, well, I kind of like this. I, yeah. And I, I, this is, I don't think he, I, I don't think, I think at some point he was going to kill Jerry Howell. I don't think it was this soon. He could have been. If, if, it, we, start, if we start looking, he starts holding his victims for longer. Um, and it, uh, he starts holding his victims for longer, uh, mostly because he was attracted to them. We'll see with Robert Sheldon. He doesn't hold him as long because again, he says he's not attracted to him. Um, now he, yes, he got off on the killing, but he's also getting off on the torture very much. So, um, Oh yes. And yeah, but yes, I agree. And it's just, I think when I just don't, I don't know. I just something when I was researching this long with you, for me, I was reading this and I've read throughout all the victims. I kept going back to Jerry Howell. And I was like, I don't think he meant to kill him. No, I, like, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not absolving him, obviously. No, but what I'm I, saying is this is this is where he goes. OK, oh, Jerry died. Oh, wow. I, was, I didn't. Well, that didn't, he I mean, why else would he try to resuscitate him? Well, the, and that's but a, that's the thing. I, I think he he had a plan to kill him eventually. He, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it was that early 28 hours. It's in the grand scheme of things compared to his other victims. It's not that long. Oh, oh yeah. No. Um, and I think just Jerry Howell was also young, so he didn't have the ability to hold out as long as the other victims. Um, and again, this is his first one, which means he pushed up too far. Again, with serial killers, we start seeing that their first couple victims are always the odd ones. That's usually where they'll get caught is the first ones where you'll see something because they've slipped up. They've made a mess somehow because Mm -hmm. they're still trying to get into their groove, find their MO, what what it is that they like to do, Um, especially when you get into pseudosadism where... Mm -hmm. Which obviously Bordella is a he's pseudo sadism he's a sadomasochist by far. Um, I would say so. I to me he gets off more on the torture than he does on killing. I think killing is just the yes he may get off on it, but it's just the end to this victim and the beginning to another. Um, hmm. But. Um, he, again, on April 12th, he drugged him. He was adamant. He held no firm malice towards Sheldon, but he saw him as someone upon whom he could express some of the anger and frustration that I had toward other people. Um, so this was basically his punching bag. Sheldon was drugged with sedatives and held captive on the second floor bedroom for three days enduring forms of torture, such as the swabbing of drain cleaner in his left eye, the insertion of needles beneath the fingertips, the binding of wrists with piano wire with the intention of permanently damaging the nerves in his hands, and filling his ears with caulking to reduce his hearing capacity. Now, I think Robert Burdella spent a lot of time in a library. Obviously, this is the time before the internet. Um, if this was the day and age, I think we could look at his internet searches and figure out what the military does to torture people or doesn't do to torture people um, because the the needles between the fingertips are very much a black site torture thing um that is what has been rumored to to work because 
your fingertips are the biggest. Very sensitive. Yeah, it's where you have the most nerve endings. Um, and it's very painful. Uh, three days after he began holding Sheldon captive, on April 15th, a workman came to perform some scheduled work on the roof of his home leading Bradella to choose to fatally suffocate Sheldon by placing a sack over his head, which he then tightened with a piece of rope. He then dissected Sheldon's body in the third floor bathroom. And again, this is another thing where I think, I don't think he planned on killing him yet, or he didn't plan on killing him at all. Just like Jerry Howell, Jerry Howell died of whatever was happening to him. And with this one, in order to hide what was going on, he was forced to kill Sheldon. So it may be that he didn't even want to kill Sheldon or wanted to hold out for hold a while. On, um, where seems like a pretty, uh, pretty sloppy oversight. Yeah. Um. The let's see, the next victim happened in June. Berdella found Mark Wallace hiding in his tool shed to seek shelter from a severe thunderstorm. He invited him inside and noticing Wallace's acute state of tenseness and depression, volunteered to inject him with uh, chlorpromazine with the explanation that this would calm down and relax him. So the same sedative that he was using before. That's how you pronounce it. I couldn't. I looked at that. Chlorpromazine. Yes. I looked at that and I was like, I'm not even going to try. Okay. Figure it out because I can't. Chlorpromazine. Um, So another sedative, another very strong sedative. Um, Almost almost like a horse tranquilizer. Um, Wallace willingly accepted the offer. And 30 minutes later, Berdella decided to render him captive. Again, so th- this is the other thing with with Robert Berdella that makes him so interesting is that most serial killers, BTK, Ted Bundy, uh, John Wayne Gacy, they all went out and sought their victims out. He Very much so. was a serial killer of opportunity. People came to him and then he made the split decision to say, yes, this is my next next victim. I think personally, if I, I think that Jerry Howell was one that he decided he was going to do stuff with. Um, because he had him in the car, he chose to drove him to drug him and drive. Right. Um, but I think with the other ones, if Sheldon wouldn't have shown up on his front door, if Mark Wallace wouldn't have been in his shed, I think Jerry Howell would have been it. I personally don't think we don't see any instance of him going out and seeking out a victim. All of at them, least not at this stage. Yeah, all of all of them at this point tend to fall in his lap. And then I think this is where he starts getting a taste for it. I think Mark Wallace is really where he starts getting a taste for it. Um, and then once we get to the next victim, it gets even it goes even further because the next victim is where he actually he yes he kind of gets dropped in the lap, but then he goes out to seek him out. Um, Wallace was carried to the second floor bedroom where he endured almost a day of captivity and torture including the application of alligator clips to his nipples to facilitate electrical shock to his body at any point at which Wallace began regressing into a state of unconsciousness. Uh, according to Berdella, one after one hour after his experimenting with hypodermic needles by inserting them into various muscles upon his victim's back, Mark Wallace died through a combination of the drugs, the gag, and the lack of oxygen. Another one. He didn't purposely kill him. It, he just kind of... It happened. I Again, he's still trying to find his niche. Of, yeah. His serial killer niche. Of I what, guess you could say doing. from the various means of what he's doing this, he's getting curious. He's, he's oh, yeah. obviously... I think he's uh, 
I'm sure he's already long since thought about it, but now he's having, he's getting people, he's having, he's holding them captive for an extended period of time. So he's getting curious and exploring this sexual sadomasochism and, and just kind of going with, he's just pushing the limit of to where, you know, his victims will hold out. So, and this is the other thing when we, as law enforcement, we look at, any murder, not just a serial killer, but we look at an MO. Um, we look at how, how this kill is done, especially with a serial killer. There's usually a pattern. Uh, BTK, obviously, bind them, torture them, kill them. That was his thing. Um, here, there is no pattern of it. Yes, he's holding them and torturing them, but the torture is not the same with each victim. He is progressively getting worse and we're going to see he gets much worse. Um, and even like with this victim, there was no, from the notes that we can tell with Mark Wallace, there was no rape involved. It was just torture. Um, we're going to start to, so we can kind of get that. Maybe he wasn't sexually attracted to Mark Wallace. It seems that the victims that he rapes, are the ones he's attracted to, such as Jerry Howell. He did rape Jerry Howell, but he did not rape uh, his second victim. There was no statement that he raped him, and he had already said that he was not physically attracted to him. So, as you said, he was just the second victim was just a punching bag. Yeah, it was just getting his frustration out, and then I think that was him figuring out that he likes it. Hey guys, just a statement here unfortunately this episode was a little too large to fit into one whole session so we have decided to split this up into two parts so please tune in next week for part two of robert uh